The Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter One The Science of Deduction. Sherlock Holmes took his bottle from the corner of the mantelpiece and his hypodermic syringe from its neat Morocco case. With his long, white, nervous fingers, he adjusted the delicate needle and rolled back his left shirt cuff. For some little time his eyes rested thoughtfully upon the sinewy forearm and wrist all dotted and scarred with innumerable puncture marks. Finally he thrust the sharp point home, pressed down the tiny piston, and sank back into the velvet-lined armchair with a long sigh of satisfaction. Three times a day for many months I had witnessed this performance, but custom had not reconciled my mind to it. On the contrary, from day to day I had become more irritable at the sight, and my conscience swelled nightly within me at the thought that I had lacked the courage to protest. Again and again I had registered a vow that I should deliver my soul upon the subject. But there was that in the cool, nonchalant air of my companion which made him the last man with whom one would care to take anything approaching to a liberty. His great powers, his masterly manner, and the experience which I had had of his many extraordinary qualities, all made me diffident and backward in crossing him. Yet upon that afternoon, whether it was the bone which I had taken with my lunch, or the additional exasperation produced by the extreme deliberation of his manner, I suddenly felt that I could hold out no longer. "'Which is it today?' I asked. "'Morphine or cocaine?' He raised his eyes languidly from the old black-letter volume which he had opened. "'It is cocaine,' he said. "'A seven percent solution. Would you care to try it?' "'No, indeed,' I answered brusquely. "'My constitution has not got over the Afghan campaign yet. I cannot afford to throw any extra strain upon it.' He smiled at my vehemence. "'Perhaps you are right, Watson,' he said. "'I suppose that its influence is physically a bad one. I find it, however, so transcendently stimulating and clarifying to the mind that its secondary action is a matter of small moment.' But "'Consider,' I said earnestly, "'count the cost. Your brain may, as you say, be roused and excited.' but it is a pathological and morbid process which involves increased tissue change and may at last leave a permanent weakness you know too what a black reaction comes upon you surely the game is hardly worth the candle why should you for a mere passing pleasure risk the loss of those great powers with which you have been endowed remember that i speak not only as one comrade to another but as a medical man to one for whose constitution he is to some extent answerable he did not seem offended. On the contrary, he put his fingertips together and leaned his elbows on the arms of his chair, like one who has a relish for conversation. "'My mind,' he says, "'rebels at stagnation. Give me the problems, give me work, give me the most abstruse cryptogram or the most intricate analysis, and I am in my own proper atmosphere.' I can dispense, then, with artificial stimulants. But I abhor the dull routine of existence. 
i crave for mental exaltation that is why i have chosen my own particular profession or rather created it for i am the only one in the world the only unofficial detective i said raising my eyebrows the only unofficial consulting detective he answered i am the last and highest court of appeal in detection when gregson or lestrade or athelney jones are out of their depths which by the way is their normal state the matter is laid before me i examine the data as an expert and pronounce a specialist's opinion i claim no credit in such cases my name figures in no newspaper the work itself the pleasure of finding a field for my peculiar powers is my highest reward but you have yourself had some experience of my methods of work in the jefferson hope case yes indeed said i cordially i was never so struck by anything in my life i even embodied it in a small brochure with the somewhat fantastic title of a study in scarlet he shook his head sadly i glanced over it said he honestly i cannot congratulate you upon it detection is or ought to be an exact science and should be treated in the same cold and unemotional manner you have attempted to tinge it with romanticism which produces much the same effect as if you worked a love story or an elopement into the fifth proposition of euclid but the romance was there i remonstrated i could not tamper with the facts some facts should be suppressed or at least a just sense of proportion should be observed in treating them the only point in the case which deserved mention was the curious analytical reasoning from effects to causes by which i succeeded in unravelling it i was annoyed at his criticism of a work which had been especially designed to please him i confess too that i was irritated by the egotism which seemed to demand that every line of my pamphlet should be devoted to his own special doings more than once during the years that i had lived with him in baker street i had observed that a small vanity underlay my companion's quiet and didactic manner i make no remark however but sat nursing my wounded leg i had a gisale bullet through it some time before and though it did not prevent me from walking it ached wearily at every change of the weather my practice has extended recently to the continent said holmes after a while filling up his old briar root pipe i was consulted last week by francois le Villard, who as you probably know has come rather to the front lately in the french detective service he has all the celtic power of quick intuition but he is deficient in the wide range of exact knowledge which is essential to the higher developments of his art the case was concerned with a will and possessed some features of interest i was able to refer him to two parallel cases the one at riga in 1857 and the other at st louis in 1871 which have suggested to him the true solution here is the letter which i had this morning acknowledging my assistance he tossed over as he spoke a crumpled sheet of foreign notepaper i glanced my eyes down it catching a profusion of notes of admiration with stray magnifique 
coup de maître and tour de force all testifying to the ardent admiration of the frenchman he speaks as a pupil to his master said i oh he rates my assistance too highly said sherlock holmes lightly he has considerable gifts himself he possesses two of the three qualities necessary for the ideal detective he has the power of observation and that of deduction he is only wanting in knowledge and that may come in time he is now translating my small works into french your works oh didn't you know he cried laughing <laughs> yes i have been guilty of several monographs they are all upon technical subjects here for example is one upon the distinction between the ashes of the various tobaccos in it i enumerate a hundred and forty forms of cigar cigarette and pipe tobacco with coloured plates illustrating the difference in the ash it is a point which is continually turning up in criminal trials and which is sometimes of supreme importance as a clue if you can say definitely for example that some murder has been done by a man who was smoking an indian lunka it obviously narrows your field of search to the trained eye there is as much difference between the black ash of a trichinopoly and the white fluff of bird's eye as there is between a cabbage and a potato you have an extraordinary genius for minutiae i remarked i appreciate their importance here is my monograph upon the tracing of footsteps with some remarks upon the uses of plaster of paris as a preserver of impresses here too is a curious little work upon the influence of a trade upon the form of the hand with lithotypes of the hands of slaters sailors cork cutters compositors weavers and diamond polishers that is a matter of great practical interest to the scientific detective especially in cases of unclaimed bodies or in discovering the antecedents of criminals but i weary you with my hobby not at all i answered earnestly it is of the greatest interest to me especially since i have had the opportunity of observing your practical application of it but you spoke just now of observation and deduction surely the one to some extent implies the other why hardly he answered leaning back luxuriously in his armchair and sending up thick blue wreaths from his pipe for example observation shows me that you have been to the wigmore street post office this morning but deduction lets me know that when there you dispatched a telegram right said i right on both points but i confess that i don't see how you arrived at it it was a sudden impulse on my part and i have mentioned it to no one it is simplicity itself he remarked chuckling at my surprise <laughs> so absurdly simple that an explanation is superfluous and yet it may serve to define the limits of observation and of deduction observation tells me that you have a little reddish mould adhering to your instep just opposite the seymour street office they have taken up the pavement and thrown up some earth which lies in such a way that it is difficult to avoid treading in it in entering the earth is of this peculiar reddish tint which is found as far as i know nowhere else in the neighbourhood so much is observation the rest is deduction 
how then did you deduce the telegram why of course i knew that you had not written a letter since i sat opposite to you all morning i see also in your open desk there that you have a sheet of stamps and a thick bundle of postcards what could you go into the post office for then but to send a wire eliminate all other factors and the one which remains must be the truth in this case it certainly is so i replied after a little thought the thing however is as you say of the simplest would you think me impertinent if i were to put your theories to a more severe test on the contrary he answered it would prevent me from taking a second dose of cocaine i should be delighted to look into any problem which you might submit to me i've heard you say that it's difficult for a man to have any object in daily use without leaving the impress of his individuality upon it in such a way that a trained observer might read it now i have here a watch which has recently come into my possession would you have the kindness to let me have an opinion upon the character or habits of the late owner i handed him over the watch with some slight feeling of amusement in my heart for the test was as i thought an impossible one and i intended it as a lesson against the somewhat dogmatic tone which he occasionally assumed he balanced the watch in his hand gazed hard at the dial opened the back and examined the works first with his naked eyes and then with a powerful convex lens i could hardly keep from smiling at his crestfallen face when he finally snapped the case to and handed it back there are hardly any data he remarked the watch has been recently cleaned which robs me of my most suggestive facts you're right i answered it was clean before being sent to me in my heart i accused my companion of putting forward a most lame and impotent excuse to cover his failure what data could he expect from an uncleaned watch though unsatisfactory my research has not been entirely barren he observed staring up at the ceiling with dreamy lacklustre eyes subject to your correction i should judge that the watch belonged to your elder brother who inherited it from your father that you gather no doubt from the h w on the back quite so the w suggests your own name the date of the watch is nearly fifty years back and the initials are as old as the watch so it was made for the last generation jewelry usually descends to the eldest son and he is most likely to have the same name as the father your father has if i remember right been dead many years it has therefore been in the hands of your eldest brother right so far said i anything else he was a man of untidy habits very untidy and careless he was left with good prospects but he threw away his chances lived for some time in poverty with occasional short intervals of prosperity and finally taking to drink he died and that is all i can gather i sprang from my chair and limped impatiently about the room with considerable bitterness in my heart this is unworthy of you holmes i said i could not have believed that you would have descended to this you have made inquiries into the history of my unhappy brother and you now pretend to deduce this knowledge in some fanciful way 
you cannot expect me to believe that you've read all this from his old watch it is unkind and to speak plainly has a touch of charlatanism in it my dear doctor said he kindly pray accept my apologies viewing the matter as an abstract problem i had forgotten how personal and painful a thing it might be to you i assure you however as i never even knew that you had a brother until you handed me the watch then how in the name of all that is wonderful did you get these facts they're absolutely correct in every particular ah that is good luck i could only say what was the balance of probability i did not at all expect to be so accurate but it was not mere guesswork no no i never guess it is a shocking habit destructive to the logical faculty what seems strange to you is only so because you do not follow my train of thought or observe the small facts upon which large inferences may depend for example i began by stating that your brother was careless when you observe the lower part of that watch case you notice that it is not only dinted in two places but it is cut and marked all over from the habit of keeping other hard objects such as keys or coins in the same pocket surely it is no great feat to assume that a man who treats a fifty guinea watch so cavalierly must be a careless man neither is it a very far-fetched inference that a man who inherits one article of such value is pretty well provided for in other respects i nodded to show that i followed his reasoning it is very customary for pawnbrokers in england when they take a watch to scratch the number of the ticket with a pinpoint upon the inside of the case it is more handy than a label as there is no risk of the number being lost or transposed there are no less than four such numbers visible to my lens on the inside of this case inference that your brother was often at low water secondary inference that he had occasional bursts of prosperity or he could not have redeemed the pledge finally i ask you to look at the inner plate which contains the keyhole look at the thousands of scratches all round the hole marks where the key has slipped what sober man's key could have scored those grooves but you will never see a drunkard's watch without them he winds it at night and he leaves these traces of his unsteady hand where is the mystery in all this it is as clear as daylight i answered i regret the injustice which i did you i should have had more faith in your marvellous faculty may i ask whether you have any professional inquiry on foot at present none hence the cocaine i cannot live without brain work what else is there to live for stand at the window here was ever such a dreary dismal unprofitable world see how the yellow fog swirls down the street and drifts across the dun-coloured houses what could be more hopelessly prosaic and material what is the use of having powers doctor when one has no field upon which to exert them crime is commonplace existence is commonplace and no qualities save those which are commonplace have any function upon earth i had opened my mouth to reply to this tirade when with a crisp knock 
our landlady entered bearing a card upon the brass salver a young lady for you sir she said addressing my companion miss mary morstan he read hmm i have no recollection of the name ask the young lady to step up mrs hudson don't go doctor i should prefer that you remain end of chapter one Chapter Two of the Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, the Statement of the Case. Miss Morstan entered the room with a firm step and an outward composure of manner. She was a blonde young lady, small, dainty, well gloved, and dressed in the most perfect taste. There was, however, a plainness and simplicity about her costume which bore with it a suggestion of limited means. Her dress was a sombre, greyish beige, untrimmed and unbraided, and she wore a small turban of the same dull hue, relieved only by a suspicion of white feather in the side. Her face had neither regularity of feature nor beauty of complexion, but her expression was sweet and amiable, and her large blue eyes were singularly spiritual and sympathetic. In an experience of women which extends over many nations and three separate continents, I have never looked upon a face which gave a clearer promise of a refined and sensitive nature. I could not but observe that as she took the seat which Sherlock Holmes placed for her, her lip trembled, her hand quivered, and she showed every sign of intense inward agitation. "'I have come to you, Mr. Holmes,' she said, "'because you once enabled my employer mrs cecil forrester to unravel a little domestic complication she was much impressed by your kindness and skill mrs cecil forrester he repeated thoughtfully i believe that i was of some slight service to her the case however as i remember it was a very simple one she did not think so but at least you cannot say the same of mine i can hardly imagine anything more strange more utterly inexplicable than the situation in which i find myself holmes rubbed his hands and his eyes glistened he leaned forward in his chair with an expression of extraordinary concentration upon his clear-cut hawk-like features state your case said he in brisk business tones i felt that my position was an embarrassing one uh, you will i am sure excuse me i said rising from my chair to my surprise, the young lady held up her gloved hand to detain me. "'If your friend,' she said, "'would be good enough to stop, he might be of inestimable service to me.' I relapsed into my chair. "'Briefly,' she continued, "'the facts are these. My father was an officer in an Indian regiment who sent me home when I was quite a child. My mother was dead, and I had no relative in England.' I was placed, however, in a comfortable boarding establishment at Edinburgh, and there I remained until I was seventeen years of age. In the year 1878, my father, who was senior captain of his regiment, obtained twelve months' leave and came home. He telegraphed to me from London that he had arrived all safe and directed me to come down at once, giving the Langham Hotel as his address. 
His message, as I remember, was full of kindness and love. On reaching London, I drove to the Langham, and was informed that Captain Morstan was staying there, but that he had gone out the night before, and had not yet returned. I waited all day without news of him. That night, on the advice of the manager of the hotel, I communicated with the police, and next morning we advertised in all the papers. Our inquiries led to no result, and from that day to this no word has ever been heard of my unfortunate father. He came home with his heart full of hope, to find some peace, some comfort, and instead— She put her hand to her throat, and a choking sob cut short the sentence. "'The date?' asked Holmes, opening his notebook. "'He, he disappeared upon the 3rd of December, 1878, nearly ten years ago.' "'His luggage?' "'Remained at the hotel.' There was nothing in it to suggest a clue, some clothes, some books, and a considerable number of curiosities from the Adaman Islands. He had been one of the officers in charge of the convict guard there. Had he any friends in town? Only one that we know of. Major Sholto, of his own regiment, the 34th Bombay Inventory. The Major had retired some little time before, and lived at Upper Norwood. We communicated with him, of course, but he did not even know that his brother officer was in England. "'A singular case,' remarked Holmes. "'I have not yet described to you the most singular part. About six years ago, to be exact, upon the 4th of May, 1882, an advertisement appeared in the Times asking for the address of Miss Mary Morstan, and stating that it would be to her advantage to come forward. There was no name or address appended. I had at that time just entered the family of Mrs. Cecil Forrester, in the capacity of governess. By her advice, I published my address in the advertisement column. The same day, there arrived through the post a small cardboard box addressed to me, which I found to contain a very large and lustrous pearl. No word of writing was enclosed. Since then, every year, upon the same date, there has always appeared a similar box, containing a similar pearl, without any clue as to the sender. They have been pronounced by an expert to be of a rare variety, and of considerable value. You can see for yourselves that they are very handsome." She opened a flat box as she spoke, and showed me six of the finest pearls that I had ever seen. "'Your statement is most interesting,' said Sherlock Holmes. "'Has anything else occurred to you?' "'Yes, and no later than today. That is why I have come to you. This morning I received this letter, which you will perhaps read for yourself.' "'Thank you,' said Holmes. "'The envelope, too, please. Postmark London, Southwest, date July 7th. Hmm. Man's thumb mark on corner, probably postman, best quality paper, envelopes at sixpence a packet, particular man in his stationery, no address. Be at the third pillar from the left outside the Lyceum Theatre tonight at seven o'clock. If you are distrustful, bring two friends. 
you are a wronged woman and you shall have justice do not bring police if you do all will be in vain your unknown friend well really this is a very pretty little mystery what do you intend to do miss morstan that is exactly what i want to ask you then we shall most certainly go you and i and yes why dr watson is the very man your correspondent says two friends he and i have worked together before but would he come she asked with something appealing in her voice and expression i should be proud and happy said i fervently if i can be of any service you are both very kind she answered i have led a retired life and have no friends whom i could appeal to if i am here at six it will do i suppose you must not be later said holmes there is one other point however is this handwriting the same as that upon the pearl box addresses i have them here she answered producing half a dozen pieces of paper you are certainly a model client you have the correct intuition let us see now he spread out the papers upon the table and gave little darting glances from one to the other they are disguised hands except the letter he said presently but there can be no question as to the authorship see how the irrepressible greek e will break out and see the twirl of the final s they are undoubtedly by the same person i should not like to suggest false hopes miss morstan but is there any resemblance between this hand and that of your father nothing could be more unlike i expected to hear you say so we shall look out for you then at six pray allow me to keep the papers i may look into the matter before then it is only half past three au revoir then au revoir said our visitor and with a bright kindly glance from one to the other of us she replaced her pearl box in her bosom and hurried away standing at the window i watched her walking briskly down the street until the grey turban and white feather were but a speck in the sombre crowd what a very attractive woman i exclaimed turning to my companion he had lit his pipe again and was leaning back with drooping eyelids is she he said languidly i did not observe you really are an automaton a calculating machine i cried there's something positively inhuman in you at times he smiled gently it is of the first importance he said not to allow your judgment to be biased by personal qualities a client is to me a mere unit a factor in a problem the emotional qualities are antagonistic to clear reasoning i assure you that the most winning woman i ever knew was hanged for poisoning three little children for their insurance money and the most repellent man of my acquaintance is a philanthropist who has spent nearly a quarter of a million upon the london poor in this case however i never make exceptions an exception disproves the rule have you ever had occasion to study character in handwriting what do you make of this fellow's scribble it is legible and regular i answered a man of business habits and some force of character holmes shook his head look at his long letters he said they hardly rise above the common herd that d might be an a and that l an e 
Men of character always differentiate their long letters, however illegibly they may write. There is vacillation in his K's, and self-esteem in his capitals. I am going out now. I have some few references to make. Let me recommend this book, one of the most remarkable ever penned. It is Winwood Reed's Martyrdom of Man. I shall be back in an hour. I sat in the window with the volume in my hand, but my thoughts were far from the daring speculations of the writer. My mind ran upon our late visitor. Her smiles, the deep rich tones of her voice, the strange mystery which overhung her life. If she was seventeen at the time of her father's disappearance, she must be seven-and-twenty now, a sweet age when youth has lost its self-consciousness and become a little sobered by experience. So I sat and mused until such dangerous thoughts came into my head that I hurried away to my desk and plunged furiously into the latest treatise upon pathology. What was I, an army surgeon with a weak leg and a weaker banking account, that I should dare to think of such things? She was a unit, a factor, nothing more. If my future were black, it was better, surely, to face it like a man than to attempt to brighten it by mere will-o'-the-wisps of the imagination. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 of The Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3. In Quest of a Solution It was half-past five before Holmes returned. He was bright, eager, and in excellent spirits, a mood which in his case alternated with fits of the blackest depression. "'There is no great mystery in this matter,' he said, taking the cup of tea which I had poured out for him. The facts appear to admit of only one explanation. What, you've sold it already? Well, that would be too much to say. I have discovered a suggestive fact, that is all. It is, however, very suggestive. The details are still to be added. I have just found, on consulting the back files of the Times, that Major Sholto, of Upper Norwood, late of the 34th Bombay Infantry, died upon the 28th of April, 1882. I may be very obtuse, Holmes, but I fail to see what this suggests. No, you surprise me. Look at it in this way, then. Captain Morstan disappears. The only person in London whom he could have visited is Major Sholto. Major Sholto denies having heard that he was in London. Four years later, Sholto dies. Within a week of his death, Captain Morstan's daughter receives a valuable present, which is repeated from year to year, and now culminates in a letter which describes her as a wronged woman. What wrong can it refer to except this deprivation of her father? And why should the presents begin immediately after Sholto's death, unless it is that Sholto's heir knows something of the mystery and desires to make compensation? Have you any alternative theory which will meet the facts? But what a strange compensation! And how strangely made! Why, too, should he write a letter now, rather than six years ago? Again, the letter speaks of giving her justice. What justice can she have? It is too much to suppose that her father is still alive. There is no other injustice in her case that you know of. 
"'There are difficulties. "'There are certainly difficulties,' said Sherlock Holmes pensively. "'But our expedition of to-night will solve them all. "'Ah, here is a four-wheeler, and Miss Morstan is inside. "'Are you all ready? "'Then we had better go down, for it is a little past the hour.' "'I picked up my hat and my heaviest stick, "'but I observed that Holmes took his revolver from his drawer "'and slipped it into his pocket.' It was clear that he thought that our night's work might be a serious one. Miss Morstan was muffled in a dark cloak, and her sensitive face was composed but pale. She must have been more than woman if she did not feel some uneasiness at the strange enterprise upon which we were embarking, yet her self-control was perfect, and she readily answered the few additional questions which Sherlock Holmes put to her. "'Major Sholto was a very particular friend of Papa's,' she said. "'His letters were full of allusions to the Major. "'He and Papa were in command of the troops at the Andaman Islands, "'so they were thrown a great deal together. "'By the way, a curious paper was found in Papa's desk, "'which no one could understand. "'I don't suppose that it is of the slightest importance, "'but I thought you might care to see it, "'so I brought it with me. It is here.' Holmes unfolded the paper carefully and smoothed it out upon his knee. He then very methodically examined it all over with his double lens. "'It is paper of native Indian manufacture,' he remarked. "'It has, at some time, been pinned to a board. The diagram upon it appears to be a plan of part of a large building with numerous halls, corridors, and passages. At one point is a small cross done in red ink, and above it is a 337 from left, in faded pencil writing. In the left-hand corner is a curious hieroglyphic like four crosses in a line with their arms touching. Beside it is written in very rough and coarse characters, The Sign of the Four, Jonathan Small, Mohammed Singh, Abdullah Khan, Dost Akbar. No, I confess that I do not see how this bears upon the matter, yet it is evidently a document of importance. It has been kept carefully in a pocket-book, for the one side is as clean as the other. It was in this pocket-book that we found it. Preserve it carefully, then, Miss Morstan, for it may prove to be of use to us. I begin to suspect that this matter may turn out to be much deeper and more subtle than I at first supposed. I must reconsider my ideas." He leaned back in the cab, and I could see by his drawn brow and his vacant eye that he was thinking intently. Miss Morstan and I chatted in an undertone about our present expedition and its possible outcome, but our companion maintained his impenetrable reserve until the end of our journey. It was a September evening, and not yet seven o'clock, but the day had been a dreary one, and a dense, drizzly fog lay low upon the great city mud-coloured clouds drooped sadly over the muddy streets. Down the strand the lamps were but misty splotches of diffused light which threw a feeble circular glimmer upon the slimy pavement. The yellow glare from the shop-windows streamed out into the steamy, vaporous air and threw a murky, shifting radiance across the crowded thoroughfare. There was, to my mind, something eerie and ghost-like in the endless procession of faces which flitted across these narrow bars of light. Sad faces, 
and glad, haggard and merry, like all humankind, they flitted from the gloom into the light, and so back into the gloom once more. I am not subject to impressions, but the dull heavy evening, with the strange business upon which we were engaged, combined to make me nervous and depressed. I could see from Miss Morstan's manner that she was suffering from the same feeling. Holmes alone could rise superior to petty influences. He held his open notebook upon his knee, and from time to time he jotted down figures and memoranda in the light of his pocket-lantern. At the Lyceum Theatre the crowds were already thick at the side entrances. In front a continuous stream of hansoms and four-wheelers were rattling up, discharging their cargoes of shirt-fronted men and beshawled, bediamonded women. We'd hardly reached the third pillar, which was our rendezvous, before a small, dark, brisk man in the dress of a coachman accosted us. "'Are you the parties who come with the Miss Morstan?' he asked. "'I am Miss Morstan, and these two gentlemen are my friends,' said she. He bent a pair of wonderfully penetrating and questioning eyes upon us. "'You will excuse me, miss,' he said with a certain dogged manner, "'but I was to ask you to give me your word that neither of your companions is a police officer.' "'I give you my word on that,' she answered. He gave a shrill whistle, on which a street Arab led across a four-wheeler and opened the door. The man who had addressed us mounted to the box, while we took our places inside. We had hardly done so before the driver whipped up his horse, and we plunged away at a furious pace through the foggy streets. The situation was a curious one. We were driving to an unknown place, on an unknown errand. Yet our invitation was either a complete hoax which was an inconceivable hypothesis, or else we had good reason to think that important issues might hang upon our journey. Miss Morstan's demeanour was as resolute and collected as ever. I endeavoured to cheer and amuse her by reminiscences of my adventures in Afghanistan. But to tell the truth, I was myself so excited at our situation and so curious as to our destination that my stories were slightly involved. To this day she declares that I told her one moving anecdote as to how a musket looked into my tent at the dead of night, and how I fired a double-barrelled tiger-cub at it. At first I had some idea as to the direction in which we were driving, but soon, what with our pace, the fog, and my own limited knowledge of London, I lost my bearings and knew nothing, save that we seemed to be going a very long way. Sherlock Holmes was never at fault, however and he muttered the names as the cab rattled through squares and in and out by tortuous by-streets. "'Rochester Row,' said he. "'Now Vincent Square. Now we come out on the Vauxhall Bridge Road. We're making for the Surrey side, apparently. Yes, I thought so. Now we're on the bridge. You can catch glimpses of the river.' We did indeed get a fleeting view of a stretch of the Thames, with the lamps shining upon the broad, silent water. But our cab dashed on and was soon involved in a labyrinth of streets upon the other side. "'Wordsworth Road,' said my companion. "'Priory Road, Lark Hall Lane, Stockwell Place, Robert Street, Cold Harbour Lane. Our quest does not appear to take us to very fashionable regions.' We had indeed reached a questionable and forbidding neighbourhood. Long lines of dull brick houses were only relieved by the coarse glare 
and tawdry brilliancy of public houses at the corner then came rows of two-storied villas each with a fronting of miniature garden and then again interminable lines of new staring brick buildings the monster tentacles which the giant city was throwing out into the country at last the cab drew up at the third house in a new terrace none of the other houses were inhabited and that at which we stopped was as dark as its neighbours save for a single glimmer in the kitchen window on our knocking however the door was instantly thrown open by a hindu servant clad in a yellow turban white loose-fitting clothes and a yellow sash there was something strangely incongruous in this oriental figure framed in the commonplace doorway of a third-rate suburban dwelling-house the sahib awaits you said he and even as he spoke there came a high piping voice from some inner room show them in to me kitmugar it cried show them straight into me end of chapter three chapter four of the sign of the four by sir arthur conan doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter four the story of the bald-headed man we followed the indian down a sordid and common passage ill-lit and worse furnished until he came to a door upon the right which he threw open a blaze of yellow light streamed out upon us and in the centre of the glare there stood a small man with a very high head a bristle of red hair all round the fringe of it and a bald shining scalp which shot out from among it like a mountain peak from fir trees he writhed his hands together as he stood and his features were in a perpetual jerk now smiling now scowling but never for an instant in repose nature had given him a pendulous lip and a too visible line of yellow and irregular teeth which he strove feebly to conceal by constantly passing his hand over the lower part of his face in spite of his obtrusive baldness he gave the impression of youth in point of fact he had just turned his thirtieth year your servant miss morstan he kept repeating in a thin high voice your servant gentlemen pray step into my little sanctum a small place miss but furnished to my own liking an oasis of art in the howling desert of south london we were all astonished by the appearance of the apartment into which he invited us in that sorry house it looked as out of place as a diamond of the first water in a setting of brass the richest and glossiest of curtains and tapestries draped the walls looped back here and there to expose some richly mounted painting or oriental vase the carpet was of amber and black so soft and so thick that the foot sank pleasantly into it as into a bed of moss two great tiger skins thrown athwart it increased the suggestion of eastern luxury as did a huge hookah which stood upon a mat in the corner a lamp in the fashion of a silver dove was hung from an almost invisible golden wire in the centre of the room as it burned it filled the air with a subtle and aromatic odour mr thaddeus sholto said the little man still jerking and smiling that is my name you are miss morstan of course and these gentlemen this is mr sherlock holmes 
and this is dr watson ah doctor hey cried he much excited have you your stethoscope might i ask you would you have the kindness i have grave doubts as to my mitral valve if you would be so very good the aortic i may rely upon but i should value your opinion upon the mitral i listened to his heart as requested but was unable to find anything amiss save indeed that he was in an ecstasy of fear for he shivered from head to foot it appears to be normal i said you have no cause for uneasiness you will excuse my anxiety miss morstan he remarked airily i am a great sufferer and i have long had suspicions as to that valve i am delighted to hear that they are unwarranted had your father miss morstan refrained from throwing a strain upon his heart he might have been alive now i could have struck the man across the face so hot was i at this callous and off-hand reference to so delicate a matter miss morstan sat down and her face grew white to the lips i knew in my heart that he was dead said she i can give you every information said he and what is more i can do you justice and i will too whatever brother bartholomew may say i am so glad to have your friends here not only as an escort to you but also as witnesses to what i am about to do and say the three of us can show a bold front to brother bartholomew but let us have no outsiders no police or officials we can settle everything satisfactorily among ourselves without any interference nothing would annoy brother bartholomew more than any publicity he sat down upon a low settee and blinked at us inquiringly with his weak watery blue eyes for my part said holmes whatever you may choose to say will go no further i nodded to show my agreement that is well that is well said he may i offer you a glass of chianti miss morstan or of tokay i keep no other wines shall i open a flask no well then i trust that you have no objection to tobacco smoke to the mild balsamic odour of the eastern tobacco i am a little nervous and i find my hookah an invaluable sedative he applied a taper to the great bowl and the smoke bubbled merrily through the rose-water we sat all three in a semicircle with our heads advanced and our chins upon our hands while the strange jerky little fellow with his high shining head puffed uneasily in the centre when i first determined to make this communication to you said he i might have given you my address but i feared that you might disregard my request and bring unpleasant people with you i took the liberty therefore of making an appointment in such a way that my man williams might be able to see you first i have complete confidence in his discretion and he had orders if he were dissatisfied to proceed no further in the matter you will excuse these precautions but i am a man of somewhat retiring and i might even say refined tastes and there is nothing more unesthetic than a policeman i have a natural shrinking from all forms of rough materialism i seldom come in contact with the rough crowd i live as you see with some little atmosphere of elegance around me i may call myself a patron of the arts it is my weakness the landscape is a genuine coro and though a connoisseur might perhaps throw a doubt upon that salvator rosa there cannot be the least question about the bougoreau 
I am partial to the modern French school. You will excuse me, Mr. Sholto, said Miss Morstan, but I am here at your request to learn something which you desire to tell me. It is very late, and I should desire the interview to be as short as possible. At the best it must take some time, he answered, for we shall certainly have to go to Norwood and see Brother Bartholomew. We shall all go and try, if we can, get the better of Brother Bartholomew. He is very angry with me for taking the course which has seemed right to me. I had quite high words with him last night. You cannot imagine what a terrible fellow he is when he's angry. "'If we're to go to Norwood, it would perhaps be as well to start at once,' I ventured to remark. He laughed until his ears were quite red. "'That would hardly do,' he cried. "'I don't know what he would say if I brought you in that sudden way. No, I must prepare you by showing you how we all stand to each other. In the first place, I must tell you that there are several points in the story of which I am myself ignorant. I can only lay the facts before you as far as I know them myself. My father was, as you may have guessed, Major John Sholto, once of the Indian Army. He retired some eleven years ago, and came to live at Pondicherry Lodge in Upper Norwood. He had prospered in India, and brought back with him a considerable sum of money, a large collection of valuable curiosities, and a staff of native servants. With these advantages he bought himself a house, and lived in great luxury. My twin brother Bartholomew and I were the only children. I very well remember the sensation which was caused by the disappearance of Captain Morstan. We read the details in the papers, and, knowing that he had been a friend of our father's, we discussed the case freely in his presence. He used to join in our speculations as to what could have happened, Never for an instant did we suspect that he had the whole secret hidden in his own breast, that of all men he alone knew the fate of Arthur Morstan. We did know, however, that some mystery, some positive danger, overhung our father. He was very fearful of going out alone, and he always employed two prize-fighters to act as porters at Pondicherry Lodge. Williams, who drove you to-night, was one of them. He was once lightweight champion of England. Our father would never tell us what it was he feared, but he had a most marked aversion to men with wooden legs. On one occasion he actually fired his revolver at a wooden-legged man, who proved to be a harmless tradesman canvassing for orders. We had to pay a large sum to hush the matter up. My brother and I used to think this is a mere whim of my father's, but events have since led us to change our opinion. Early in 1882 my father received a letter from India, which was a great shock to him. He nearly fainted at the breakfast-table when he opened it, and from that day he sickened to his death. What was in the letter we could never discover, but I could see as he held it that it was short and written in a scrawling hand. He had suffered for years from an enlarged spleen, but he now became rapidly worse, and towards the end of April we were informed that he was beyond all hope, and that he wished to make a last communication to us. When we entered his room he was propped up with pillows and breathing heavily. He besought us to lock the door, and to come upon either side of the bed 
then grasping our hands he made a remarkable statement to us in a voice which was broken as much by emotion as by pain i shall try and give it to you in his own very words i have only one thing he said which weighs upon my mind at this supreme moment it is my treatment of poor morstan's orphan the cursed greed which has been my besetting sin through life has withheld from her the treasure half at least of which should have been hers and yet i have made no use of it myself so blind and foolish a thing is avarice the mere feeling of possession has been so dear to me that i could not bear to share it with another see that chaplet dipped with pearls beside the quinine bottle even that i could not bear to part with although i had got it out with the design of sending it to her you my sons will give her a fair share of the agra treasure but send her nothing not even the chaplet until i am gone after all men have been as bad as this and have recovered i will tell you how morstan died he continued he had suffered for years from a weak heart but he concealed it from everyone i alone knew it when in india he and i through a remarkable chain of circumstances came into possession of a considerable treasure i brought it over to england and on the night of morstan's arrival he came straight over here to claim his share he walked over from the station and was admitted by my faithful lal chowdar who is now dead morstan and i had a difference of opinion as to the division of the treasure and we came to heated words morstan had sprung out of his chair in a paroxysm of anger when he suddenly pressed his hand to his side his face turned a dusky hue and he fell backwards cutting his head against the corner of the treasure chest when i stooped over him i found to my horror that he was dead for a long time i sat half distracted wondering what i should do my first impulse was of course to call for assistance but i could not but recognize that there was every chance that i would be accused of his murder his death at the moment of a quarrel and the gash in his head would be black against me again an official inquiry could not be made without bringing out some facts about the treasure which i was particularly anxious to keep secret he had told me that no soul upon earth knew where he had gone there seemed to be no necessity why any soul ever should know i was still pondering over the matter when looking up i saw my servant lal chowdar in the doorway he stole in and bolted the door behind him do not fear sahib he said no one need know that you have killed him let us hide him away and who is the wiser i did not kill him said i lal chowdar shook his head and smiled i heard it all sahib said he i heard you quarrel and i heard the blow but my lips are sealed all are asleep in the house let us put him away together that was enough to decide me if my own servant could not believe my innocence how could i hope to make it good before twelve foolish tradesmen in a jury box lal chowdar and i disposed of the body that night and within a few days the london papers were full of mysterious disappearance of captain morstan you will see from what i say that i can hardly be blamed in the matter
my fault lies in the fact that we concealed not only the body but also the treasure and that i have clung to morstan's share as well as to my own i wish you therefore to make restitution put your ears down to my mouth the treasure is hidden in at this instant a horrible change came over his expression his eyes stared wildly his jaw dropped and he yelled in a voice which i can never forget keep him out for christ's sake keep him out we both stared round at the window behind us upon which his gaze was fixed a face was looking in at us out of the darkness we could see the whitening of the nose where it was pressed against the glass it was a bearded hairy face with wild cruel eyes and an expression of concentrated malevolence my brother and i rushed towards the window but the man was gone when we returned to my father his head had dropped and his pulse had ceased to beat we searched the garden that night but found no sign of the intruder save that just under the window a single footmark was visible in the flower bed but for that one trace we might have thought that our imaginations had conjured up that wild fierce face we soon however had another and a more striking proof that there were secret agencies at work all round us the window of my father's room was found open in the morning his cupboards and boxes had been rifled and upon his chest was fixed a torn piece of paper with the words the sign of the four scrawled across it what the phrase meant or who our secret visitor may have been we never knew as far as we can judge none of my father's property had been actually stolen though everything had been turned out my brother and i naturally associated this peculiar incident with the fear which haunted my father during his life but it is still a complete mystery to us the little man stopped to relight his hookah and puffed thoughtfully for a few moments we had all sat absorbed listening to his extraordinary narrative at the short account of her father's death miss morstan had turned deadly white and for a moment i feared that she was about to faint she rallied however on drinking a glass of water which i quietly poured out for her from a venetian carafe upon the side table sherlock holmes leaned back in his chair with an abstracted expression and the lids drawn low over his glittering eyes as i glanced at him i could not but think how on that very day he had complained bitterly of the commonplaceness of life here at least was a problem which would tax his sagacity to the utmost mr thaddeus sholto looked from one to the other of us with an obvious pride at the effect which his story had produced and then continued between the puffs of his overgrown pipe my brother and i said he were as you may imagine much excited as to the treasure which my father had spoken of for weeks and for months we dug and delved in every part of the garden without discovering its whereabouts it was maddening to think that the hiding place was on his very lips at the moment that he died we could judge the splendor of his missing riches by the chaplet which he had taken out over this chaplet my brother bartholomew and i had some little discussion the pearls were evidently of great value and he was averse to part with them for between friends 
my brother was himself a little inclined to my father's fault. He thought, too, that if we parted with the chaplet, it might give rise to gossip, and finally bring us into trouble. It was all that I could do to persuade him to let me find out Miss Morstan's address, and send her a detached pearl, at fixed intervals, so that at least she might never feel destitute. "'It was a kindly thought,' said our companion earnestly. "'It was extremely good of you.' The little man waved his hand deprecatingly. "'We were your trustees,' he said. "'That was the view which I took of it, though Brother Bartholomew could not altogether see it in that light. We had plenty of money ourselves. I desired no more. Besides, it would have been such bad taste to have treated a young lady in so scurvy a fashion. Le mauvais goût mène au crime. The French have a very neat way of putting these things. Our difference of opinion on this subject went so far that I thought it best to set up rooms for myself. So I left Pondicherry Lodge, taking the old Kitmugar and Williams with me. Yesterday, however, I learn that an event of extreme importance has occurred. The treasure has been discovered. I instantly communicated with Miss Morstan, and it only remains for us to drive out to Norwood and demand our share. I explained my views last night to Brother Bartholomew, so we shall be expected, if not welcome, visitors. Mr. Thaddeus Sholto ceased and sat twitching on his luxurious settee. We all remained silent, with our thoughts upon the new development which the mysterious business had taken. Holmes was the first to spring to his feet. "'You have done well, sir, from first to last,' said he. "'It is possible that we may be able to make you some small return by throwing some light upon that which is still dark to you. But, as Miss Morstan remarked just now, it is late, and we had best put the matter through without delay. Our new acquaintance very deliberately coiled up the tube of his hookah, and produced from behind a curtain a very long, befrogged topcoat with astrakhan collar and cuffs. This he buttoned tightly up, in spite of the extreme closeness of the night, and finished his attire by putting on a rabbit-skin cap with hanging lappets which covered the ears so that no part of him was visible save his mobile and peaky face. "'My health is somewhat fragile,' he remarked, as he led the way down the passage. "'I am compelled to be a valetudinarian.' Our cab was awaiting us outside, and our programme was evidently prearranged, for the driver started off at once at a rapid pace. Thaddeus Sholto talked incessantly, in a voice which rose high above the rattle of the wheels. "'Bartholomew is a clever fellow,' said he. "'How do you think he found out where the treasure was? "'He had come to the conclusion that it was somewhere indoors. "'So he worked out all the cubic space of the house "'and made measurements everywhere, "'so that not one inch should be unaccounted for. "'Among other things, he found that the height of the building was seventy-four feet, "'but on adding together the heights of all the separate rooms "'and making every allowance for the space between,' which he ascertained by borings, he could not bring the total to more than seventy feet. There were four feet unaccounted for. These could only be at the top of the building. He knocked a hole, therefore, in the lath and plaster ceiling of the highest room, and there, sure enough, he came upon another little garret above it, which had been sealed up and was known to no one. In the centre 
stood the treasure-chest resting upon two rafters he lowered it through the hole and there it lies he computes the value of the jewels at not less than a half a million sterling at the mention of this gigantic sum we all stared at one another open-eyed miss morstan could we secure her rights would change from a needy governess to the richest heiress in england surely it was the place of a loyal friend to rejoice at such news yet i am ashamed to say that selfishness took me by the soul and that my heart turned as heavy as lead within me i stammered out some few halting words of congratulation and then sat downcast with my head drooped deaf to the babble of our new acquaintance he was clearly a confirmed hypochondriac and i was dreamily conscious that he was pouring forth interminable trains of symptoms and imploring information as to the composition and action of innumerable quack nostrums some of which he bore about in a leather case in his pocket i trust that he may not remember any of the answers which i gave him that night holmes declares that he overheard me caution him against the great danger of taking more than two drops of castor oil while i recommended strychnine in large doses as a sedative however that may be i was certainly relieved when our cab pulled up with a jerk and the coachman sprang down to open the door this miss morstan is pondicherry lodge said mr thaddeus sholto as he handed her out End of chapter four Chapter Five of the Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five, the Tragedy of Pondicherry Lodge. It was nearly eleven o'clock when we reached this final stage of our night's adventures. We had left the damp fog of the great city behind us, and the night was fairly fine. A warm wind blew from the westward, and heavy clouds moved slowly across the sky with half a moon peeping occasionally through the rifts it was clear enough to see for some distance but thaddeus sholto took down one of the side lamps from the carriage to give us a better light upon our way pondicherry lodge stood in its own grounds and was girt round with a very high stone wall topped with broken glass a single narrow iron clamped door formed the only means of entrance on this our guide knocked with a peculiar postman-like rat-tat who is there cried a gruff voice from within it is i mcmurdo you surely know my knock by this time there was a grumbling sound and a clanking and jarring of keys the door swung heavily back and a short deep-chested man stood in the opening with the yellow light of the lantern shining upon his protruded face and twinkling distrustful eyes that you mr thaddeus but who are the others i had no orders about them from the master no mcmurdo you surprise me i told my brother last night that i should bring some friends he ain't been out his room to-day mr thaddeus and i have no orders you know very well that i must stick to regulations i can let you in but your friends must just stop where they are this was an unexpected obstacle thaddeus sholto looked about him in a perplexed and helpless manner this is too bad of you mcmurdo he said if i guarantee them that is enough for you there is the young lady too she cannot wait on the public road at this hour very sorry mr thaddeus 
said the porter inexorably folk may be a friends of yours and yet no friends of the masters he pays me well to do my duty and my duty i'll do i don't know none of your friends oh yes you do mcmurdo cried sherlock holmes genially i don't think you can have forgotten me don't you remember the amateur who fought three rounds with you at allison's rooms on the night of your benefit tour years back not mr sherlock holmes roared the prize-fighter god's truth how could i have mistook you if instead of standing there so quiet you just stepped up and given me that cross hit of yours under the jaw i'd have known you without question ah you're one that has wasted your gifts you have you might have aimed high if you'd joined the fancy you see watson if all else fails me i have still one of the scientific professions open to me said holmes laughing our friend won't keep us out in the cold now i am sure in you come sir in you come you and your friends he answered very sorry mr thaddeus but orders are very strict had to be certain of your friends before i let them in inside a gravel path wound through desolate grounds to a huge clump of a house square and prosaic all plunged in shadow save where a moonbeam struck one corner and glimmered in a garret window the vast size of the building with its gloom and its deathly silence struck a chill to the heart even thaddeus sholto seemed ill at ease and the lantern quivered and rattled in his hand i cannot understand it he said there must be some mistake i distinctly told bartholomew that we should be here and yet there is no light in his window i do not know what to make of it does he always guard the premises in this way asked holmes yes he has followed my father's custom he was the favorite son you know and i sometimes think that my father may have told him more than he ever told me that is bartholomew's window up there where the moonshine strikes it is quite bright but there is no light from within i think none said holmes but i see the glint of light in that little window beside the door ah that is the housekeeper's room that is where old mrs bernstone sits she can tell us all about it but perhaps she would not mind waiting here for a minute or two for if we all go in together and she has no word of our coming she may be alarmed but hush what is that he held up the lantern and his hand shook until the circles of light flickered and wavered all around us miss morstan seized my wrist and we all stood with thumping hearts straining our ears from the great black house there sounded through the silent night the saddest and most pitiful of sounds the shrill broken whimpering of a frightened woman it is mrs bernstone said sholto she is the only woman in the house wait here i shall be back in a moment he hurried for the door and knocked in his peculiar way we could see a tall old woman admit him and sway with pleasure at the very sight of him oh mr thaddeus sir i'm so glad you've come i am so glad you've come mr thaddeus sir we heard her reiterated rejoicings until the door was closed and her voice died away into a muffled monotone our guide had left us the lantern holmes swung it slowly round and peered keenly at the house and at the great rubbish heaps which cumbered the grounds miss morstan and i stood together and her hand was in mine 
a wondrous subtle thing is love for here we were two who had never seen each other before that day between whom no word or even look of affection had ever passed and yet now in an hour of trouble our hands instinctively sought for each other i have marvelled at it since but at the time it seemed the most natural thing that i should go out to her so and as she has often told me there was in her also the instinct to turn to me for comfort and protection so we stood hand in hand like two children and there was peace in our hearts for all the dark things that surrounded us what a strange place she said looking round it looks as though all the moles in england have been let loose in it i've seen something of the sort on the side of a hill near ballarat where the prospectors have been at work and from the same cause said holmes these are the traces of the treasure seekers you must remember that they were six years looking for it no wonder that the grounds look like a gravel pit at that moment the door of the house burst open and thaddeus sholto came running out with his hands thrown forward and terror in his eyes there is something amiss with bartholomew he cried i am frightened my nerves cannot stand it he was indeed half blubbering with fear and his twitching feeble face peeping out from the great astrakhan collar had the helpless appealing expression of a terrified child come into the house said holmes in his crisp firm way yes do pleaded thaddeus sholto i really do not feel equal to giving directions we all followed him into the housekeeper's room which stood upon the left-hand side of the passage the old woman was pacing up and down with a scared look and restless picking fingers but the sight of miss morstan appeared to have a soothing effect upon her god bless your sweet calm face she cried with an hysterical sob it does me good to see you oh but i have been sorely tried this day our companion patted her thin work-worn hand and murmured some few words of kindly womanly comfort which brought the colour back into the other's bloodless cheeks master has locked himself in and will not answer me she explained all day i've waited to hear from him for he often likes to be alone but an hour ago i feared that something was amiss so i went up and peeped through the keyhole you must go up mr thaddeus you must go up and look for yourself i've seen mr bartholomew sholto in joy and in sorrow for ten long years but i never saw him with such a face on him as that sherlock holmes took the lamp and led the way for thaddeus sholto's teeth were chattering in his head so shaken was he that i had to pass my hand under his arm as we went up the stairs for his knees were trembling under him twice as we ascended holmes whipped his lens out of his pocket and carefully examined marks which appeared to me to be mere shapeless smudges of dust upon the cocoa-nut matting which served as a stair carpet he walked slowly from step to step holding the lamp and shooting keen glances to right and left miss morstan had remained behind with the frightened housekeeper the third flight of stairs ended in a straight passage of some length with a great picture in indian tapestry upon the right of it and three doors upon the left holmes advanced along it in the same slow and methodical way while we kept close at his heels with our long black shadows streaming backwards down the corridor the third door was that which we were seeking 
holmes knocked without receiving any answer and then tried to turn the handle and force it open it was locked on the inside however and by a broad and powerful bolt as we could see when we set our lamp up against it the key being turned however the hole was not entirely closed sherlock holmes bent down to it and instantly rose again with a sharp intaking of the breath there is something devilish in this watson said he more moved than i had ever before seen him what do you make of it i stooped to the hole and recoiled in horror moonlight was streaming into the room and it was bright with a vague and shifty radiance looking straight at me and suspended as it were in the air for all beneath was in shadow there hung a face the very face of our companion thaddeus there was the same high shining head the same circular bristle of red hair the same bloodless countenance the features were set however in a horrible smile a fixed and unnatural grin which in that still and moonlit room was more jarring to the nerves than any scowl or contortion so like was the face to that of our little friend that i looked round at him to make sure that he was indeed with us then i recalled to mind that he had mentioned to us that his brother and he were twins this is terrible i said to holmes what is to be done the door must come down he answered and springing against it he put all his weight upon the lock it creaked and groaned but did not yield together we flung ourselves upon it once more and this time it gave way with a sudden snap and we found ourselves within bartholomew sholto's chamber it appeared to have been fitted up as a chemical laboratory a double line of glass stoppered bottles was drawn up upon the wall opposite the door and the table was littered over with bunsen burners test tubes and retorts in the corners stood carboys of acid in wicker baskets one of these appeared to leak or to have been broken for a stream of dark colored liquid had trickled out from it and the air was heavy with a peculiarly pungent tar-like odor a set of steps stood at one side of the room in the midst of a litter of lath and plaster and above them there was an opening in the ceiling large enough for a man to pass through at the foot of the steps a long coil of rope was thrown carelessly together by the table in a wooden armchair the master of the house was seated all in a heap with his head sunk upon his left shoulder and that ghastly inscrutable smile upon his face he was stiff and cold and had clearly been dead many hours it seemed to me that not only his features but all his limbs were twisted and turned in the most fantastic fashion by his hand upon the table there lay a peculiar instrument a brown close-grained stick with a stone head like a hammer rudely lashed on with coarse twine beside it was a torn sheet of note-paper with some words scrawled upon it holmes glanced at it then handed it to me you see he said with a significant raising of the eyebrows in the light of the lantern i read with a thrill of horror the sign of the four in god's name what does it all mean i asked it means murder said he stooping over the dead man ah i expected it look here 
he pointed to what looked like a long dark thorn stuck in the skin just above the ear it looks like a thorn said i it is a thorn you may pick it out but be careful for it is poisoned i took it up between my finger and thumb it came away from the skin so readily that hardly any mark was left behind one tiny speck of blood showed where the puncture had been this is all an insoluble mystery to me said i it grows darker instead of clearer on the contrary he answered it clears every instant i only require a few missing links to have an entirely connected case we had almost forgotten our companion's presence since we entered the chamber he was still standing in the doorway the very picture of terror wringing his hands and moaning to himself suddenly however he broke out into a sharp querulous cry the treasure is gone he said they have robbed him of the treasure there is the hole through which we lowered it i helped him to do it i was the last person who saw him i left him here last night and i heard him lock the door as i came downstairs what time was that it was ten o'clock and now he is dead and the police will be called in and i shall be suspected of having had a hand in it oh yes i am sure i shall but you don't think so gentlemen surely you don't think it was i is it likely that i would have brought you here if it were i oh dear oh dear i know that i shall go mad he jerked his arms and stamped his feet in a kind of convulsive frenzy you have no reason for fear mr sholto said holmes kindly putting his hand upon his shoulder take my advice and drive down to the station to report this matter to the police offer to assist them in every way we shall wait here until your return the little man obeyed in a half stupefied fashion and we heard him stumbling down the stairs in the dark end of chapter five When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.